Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. First Timothy chapter 3, and let's stand for the reading of God's Word. First Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless now the preaching of your word, that every one of our thoughts and meditations would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. <clears throat> so we come, come back now to the book of uh, 1 Timothy, and I'm thankful for the Lord's providence in plopping us down in 1 Timothy 3, given the fact that we have just taken nominations for officers. So this will be helpful. Before we get into this passage, let me say, if you weren't at the conference, um, the recordings of the conference are up on our website. Um, Mark Robinson is an eloquent and compelling uh, preacher. He's godly uh, man, and so uh, take the time to listen to those uh, sermons. They were very encouraging, and, uh, or if you only heard a portion of them, pick up the other ones, uh, but go, go and listen. So... Back in 1 Timothy 3, we've, we've recently nominated for officers of elder and deacon, and those candidates, along with current officers and, and deacon helpers, soon will begin an officer-proving course on Saturday mornings. Um, this passage, along with others like Titus 1, will be discussed in detail, other passages in the New Testament. And they, and they list the, the qualifications or the requirements um, for church office, for those two offices that we hold to, elder and deacon. Very simply stated, these qual- they're, well, I mean, it, you kind of just have to say this nowadays, there are qualifications for offices. There are qualifications for church office, for elders and deacons having standards for those who wield any kind of authority or exercise any kind of responsibility is common. We see it all over the place. Article 2, Section 1 of the U.S. Constitution lists some requirements, 
No person except a natural-born citizen or a citizen of the United States at the time of the adoption of this Constitution shall be eligible to be to the office of president. Neither shall any person be eligible to that office who shall not have attained to the age of 35 years and been 14 years a residence within the United States. It's, it's a very simple list, isn't it? Um, natural born citizen, 35 years old or older, 14 years of residence in the United States. Um, that is a much lower level of qualification than the list for church offices for elder and deacon. Um, there is nothing there in that section of the Constitution about a man's character. Uh, nothing about his faith. Nothing about his reputation. Nothing about his use of money, right? Nothing about his marriage. Now, of course, if someone has been convicted uh, of a felony, they forfeit their right to vote and their right to run for office. So you can't be a felon. Uh, So bad character can lead to a loss of qualification, but there are no positive character traits listed here as recent candidates have amply proven. Um, Police, that's a serious statement. Police officers have standards for hire. You as business owners have standards for hire. Um, Public school teachers must have state certification. Certain jobs have requirements for certain uh, education, certain degrees. Uh, Even to be given authority to drive a car, you have to pass a test and have your eyesight checked. Okay, it's, it's, so we see standards and qualifications for certain responsibilities all over the place. It is unfortunate, therefore, that so many churches today don't care about the requirements listed in our passage. If a man or a woman has a pulse, they will be added to an elder board. Uh, in reform circles, if that man has made it in business or he has made it in law or he's made it in medicine or has several advanced degrees, he will often be quickly advanced to office. And certain character flaws will then be overlooked for the sake of having that man's influence and money locked in. In the end, many churches ignore these qualifications and simply put into office worldly successful men. Now, often worldly successful, success is a proof of an ability to lead. But that single factor does not summarize everything listed here in our passage. Officers are to be spiritually exemplary men. Sinless, no. That would disqualify every man. Exemplary, yes. Uh, Elders and deacons must be able to echo without hypocrisy what the Apostle Paul said, be imitators of me. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. And every man who has ever been, who has ever had to consider that shudders. The man who doesn't shudder in thinking about that statement, be imitators of me, 
does not know himself as he ought and isn't qualified as an elder. One of the realities of being an elder in the church is that every time you deal with somebody else's sins, you see grains of that sin, maybe not just grains, but large streams of that sin in yourself. Uh, just like, just if, if you're not convinced of that, it's just like when disciplining your children for lying, for example, you begin contemplating just exactly how you bend the truth to protect your rear end. Right? Another point of intro before we walk through the passage or the, the first couple verses. Um, this passage directly relates to qualifications for officers, but these virtues, for the most part, should be pursued by all Christians. Um, it is not as if these virtues may be left off for those who aren't called to be an, an elder. The elder must be faithful to his wedding vows, but not the church, but the non-church officer? Well, well, no way. Um, the elder must be sober-minded, but not you? Well, no way. Um, we can find these virtues, for the most part, exhorted to all of us elsewhere in Scripture. So pay attention, apply these things to yourself. If you're not called to office, or if you're uh, a man who's not called to office, or a woman or a child. Uh, so think through these things from that angle. Now, first, in verse 1, we are taught that if a man aspires to be an officer in the church, it is a fine work he desires. It's a good thing for a man to aspire to the work of an officer. The church needs men who desire to lay hold of office, to lay hold of an office. So often we see, so often I see men aspire to worldly advancement. Uh, rising up the corporate ladder, expanding the business, landing a more prestigious job. Um, and that drives that man to work very hard, even to uproot his family and all their connections in a community and in their church. Um, but when did you see a man change his plans because he aspired to church office? Um, well, I did. I did that. I came here because I wanted a pastor and left behind loved ones and a church I loved. Michael did it. Um, we see the, the church as precious, as worthy of our affection and devotion, as primary. It's service to God, and it's an incredible joy to be a steward of the mysteries of God, as Scripture says. Um, why is it that we put more stock in worldly employment, making ourselves ready, making ourselves educated, making ourselves even marketables, and so little stock in church work, making ourselves godly, making ourselves knowledgeable of Scripture, making ourselves die to self and live for others, uh, making ourselves love God more? Uh, I think of a dear friend of mine who worked with Governor Pence in Indiana as the director of his budget office. It's a big wig position. It's on his cabinet in Indiana. And when Pence left for D.C., he said to this man, let me know what you want to do. 
and he could have had a high up position in the Justice Department. Instead, he moved to southern Indiana and started a little solo lawyering practice. And, and I asked him, you know, why, how he made the decision, why he did that. And um, he said, I wanted to continue serving as an elder in my church. I mean, what a temptation for him, wasn't it? Mike Pence, his friend, whispering in his ear, giving him an offer for worldly success. The cost for his family would have been massive, right? And his heart was with his church. And God will bless him richly for such devotion to his people. He aspires to serve, and God is honored. Oh, it'd be great. It'd be great for me to be able to say that I have a friend who's hobnobbing with the Attorney General in Washington. But really, what, what joy there is in saying, I have a friend who turned down working with the Attorney General of the United States in order to serve as an elder in his church. That, that's someone I will boast about. So the church needs men who aspire to office, men who fear and love God in such a way that they can help others love and fear God, right? Some, some men are godly and they don't desire office. Some men are godly and desire it for the wrong reasons, perhaps for worldly stature or for just stature in the church or in the presbytery. Um, some men are godly and desire office because they are deluded. They're ungodly and they desire, desire office, but they're deluded about their godliness. In first, here in 1 Timothy 3, we learn what it takes. Some objective standards, first for the office of elder and then later for the office of deacon. And so what kind of godliness is a qualification for office? That's what we find out here. Uh, a question, do you aspire to godliness? Do you aspire to godliness? Or are you a cheap gracer living like a pagan and lauding the grace of Jesus? Right? Do you aspire to godliness? You should if you are a Christian. Jesus said, after all, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Is it that you desire to do what pleases God? Do you have that kind of relationship with your heavenly father? Do you want to please your father? Do you have it as your ambition to walk as your elder brother, Jesus Christ, walked? You should. Why? Because of your love, of, love for God. Your thankfulness for his gracious choice of you. First and foremost, then, your, your pursuit of godliness, your pursuit of maturity in the, in the faith, should be because you love your father. If your only motive for, for godliness is to have office, I would say you're in it only to be a man pleaser. You're seeking to be elevated in the eyes of man, right? And you'll be a disaster as an officer in Christ's church. Man pleasers pursue the appearance of godliness just to bolster their own reputation with other people, right? They major in flattery and self-preservation, but not truth. 
They like to boast about themselves rather than boasting in the Lord. So, though aspiring to the godliness necessary for office is a good thing, pursuing godliness outside of any motive other than love for God is wrong and it's misguided. Notice that the passage talks about the office of overseer. That's the translation you probably have. Overseer. The word here is episkopos, not the more familiar term presbyteros, which means elder. A good modern equivalent for the term episkopos would be a manager or a foreman. Okay, it it was a secular Greek word that was used in that manner. Um, These two words, uh, episkopos and presbyteros, are used synonymously in the New Testament. Uh, For example, in Acts chapter 20, we read about Paul sending for the elders, the presbyteroi, of the church at Ephesus, and when addressing them, he calls them episkopos. He calls them overseers. Um, Verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And then verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The same thing happens in Peter's letter in in chapter 5. So we're clearly dealing with this particular church office that we we refer to as elder, uh, though the word the Holy Spirit uses here is overseer. That word in and of itself says something though, about the duty of the office, right? It is one of spiritual oversight, of spiritual management of the flock of God, just as the Apostle Paul said to the Ephesian elders. He has made you an overseer to shepherd the church. Verse 2 then begins, an overseer then must be above reproach or irreproachable. Now, I take this as a prefatory statement. The apostle is now going to define for us what irreproachable means in the following list of ten items. Right? Again, it should be said that this does not mean sinless, rather blameless, something along those lines. He is a man who is truly to demonstrate and to, to strive for the things that follow in this list. He is not to live in such a manner that he is open to... He is easy to attack or open to attack or criticism because of his sins. Many wolves in sheep clothing in the congregation often hold pastors and elders to a standard beyond Scripture. Oh, the standard is high, right? The standard's high, but it's not sinlessness. If you are shocked that your elders are sinners... You have not learned scripture as you ought. All have sinned. As the Old Testament and her patriarchs and kings taught us nothing. And yet, on the other hand, there are sins that if a pastor or elder commits, immediately disqualify him from the ministry. There will be other times when an elder has to repent and get things in order. But not to miss. This may, you know, 
It may be a sin that does not rise to the level of disqualifying, but it is a sin and it must be dealt with. Of course, you want elders who exemplify repentance. And that kind of humility, that kind of self-abasement in the course of their service, don't you? Of course you do. So the first in the list is, as our translation puts it, this is, he's now defining what it means to be irreproachable. As our translation puts it, the husband of one wife, or more literally, a one-woman man or a one-wife husband. Um, There have been several interpretations of this phrase over the course of church history. They can be summarized in four views. Some say it means, one, an elder must be married. He cannot be a single man. The second view is a man must have only one wife for the entire course of his life. So that would exclude divorced men. Another view says it means that the man must be polygamous. I mean, monogamous, not a polygamist. Monogamous, not a polygamist. And the last fourth view is be faithful in his marriage sexually. Faithful with the wife he is with. Okay, it's hard to come to the conclusion that an elder must be married. Okay, this wooden interpretation would also mean that later in verse 4, he would also have to have more than one child. Right, the word there is children. Uh, Additionally, the Apostle Paul himself, an overseer, lobbies very hard for the goodness of singleness. Singleness, he urges in 1 Corinthians, allows a man to be free to devote himself to the things, the works of the Lord, and avoid some of the heavier cares of the world. The Apostle Paul is writing in light of what is common. Marriage and children would be the common lot of those to whom he is writing. And so he has to come, he has to mention it. It would be the common lot of the men he's dealing with. So he must address those concerns. But he's not raising it as a wooden requirement. It was so common that he couldn't go without saying it, right? Now, having said that, I would, I must say that marriage and child-rearing issues are such a huge portion of the work of the elder board that the unmarried man and the single man has his work cut out for him. He has not been, you know, changed by the, how shall I put it? the red-hot branding iron of marriage and parenthood, right? And so he must, he must give himself to fatherhood and the understanding of femininity as he can without breaking God's commands. He must read and spend time with and talk to women and children. But experience is not the only teacher. And the Apostle Paul makes that abundantly clear. Mark Robinson made that abundantly clear. His exhortations to women and children and parents were spot on. Um, Should he be disqualified? As to the second view, that a man must have had only one wife for the course of his life, that would be that a divorced man would be forbidden to be an elder. Uh, I believe that cannot be sustained. 1 Corinthians 7, 
We read that widows and widowers are free to remarry only in the Lord. Why would that rule not also apply to officers? And the freedom to remarry to the innocent party in divorce when there has been sexual unfaithfulness or abandonment, as it says in Matthew 19 and 1 Corinthians 7.15, is clear. Why, again, would that not apply to a potential officer? Um, That is why I think it's very important to inquire whether a man has been divorced, the circumstances of his divorce, whether it was biblical or unbiblical, must be investigated. Those who are married again without breaking the biblical commands are not forbidden from pursuing the office of elder. Now again, having said that, I will say this. In my 15 years as, as an uh, ordained officer in the church, I've found that divorced men, whatever the circumstances of their divorce, whether biblical or unbiblical, have a hard time exercising oversight in the church. Uh, Their divorce is such an intense breaking of vows that it cannot but have an effect on their approach to ministry. If one of the qualifications of the elder is that he managed his own household well, even if he wasn't at fault for the divorce, he has lost his command authority in his own home. Things got screwed up when he was responsible. So though a divorced man is not necessarily forbidden to serve as a church officer, extra scrutiny will be a result of such a reality. And the third view. The third view that the Apostle Paul is forbidding polygamy is a view that I held for a long time. That, this, that was the meaning of this passage. Polygamy, a man having more than one wife, was a practice. It was a practice in first century Greek, Greco-Roman culture. So the question is whether this one woman man phrase is meant only to forbid polygamy or whether it is meant to forbid all sexual infidelity, including polygamy. The reason it seems to be the fourth view that it's, it's talking about all sexual infidelity, the reason it seems to be the fourth view that is best is because of something we see later in the book of 1 Timothy. In the passage on the qualifications for the widow's list, chapter 5, we read that the woman is to be the wife of one man, or literally a one-man woman. It is a precise parallel um, construction grammatically to one-woman man. But polyandry, one woman with multiple husbands, was was not practiced in first century Greco-Roman culture. So it seems that the usage is meant not to be limited to polygamy or polyandry, but as a way of the Holy Spirit informing us that we are to be faithful to our one and only current spouse. It's a prohibition of sexual infidelity. Now, it's, of course, it is... It's ridiculous that this needs to be brought out of this passage, but an implication of this one-woman-man phrase is that the overseer, the elder, must be a man. Uh, And if married, married to a woman. Uh, I don't think I need to elaborate on that. Those who deny such things are just purposely distorting the scriptures or 
are intent on ignoring Scripture for the sake of personal deformation of church office. Officers are to be male. Remember chapter 2 that I preached three months ago, right? Um, Now let's take the next four characteristics together. An overseer must be temperate, prudent, respectable, and hospitable. I think those four words can be summarized under a heading of self-control, both within and without. Self-control both within and without. He must be temperate and prudent within and respectable and hospitable with those around him. Um, How does a temperate and prudent man behave? Temperate means to be sober, means to be clear-headed, and prudent means to be thoughtful. Uh, Sometimes it helps to define words if we paint a picture of the opposite. A man who is intemperate would be ruled by his passions and therefore muddle-headed, right? He would be a man dominated by extremes. Um, Likewise, a man who was imprudent would be what kind of man? He'd be a rash man, right? He would act and then think. Uh, So a temperate and prudent man is clear-minded, he's reasonable, and he's thoughtful. Uh, Why must an elder be a temperate and prudent man? Because the work of the session takes discernment and investigation. Uh, Discernment and diligent and patient investigation cannot be accomplished by an intemperate and imprudent man. That man is is more likely to preform his judgments and react to situations emotionally. I mean, all elders must guard against that. Right, especially um, French Canadians. Um, on our on our sabbatical, we visited the Michigan Iron Industry Museum in Nagani, and they showed a film about the copper and in uh, iron ore mining in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Immigrants from around the world—Finland, Germany, Italy, f- the French Canadians, my heritage—came um, to the UP to find work. And they lauded the work ethic of the Finnish and the Germans. And then they singled out the French Canadians saying they were very hard to manage. And um, it seems the intemperate and the imprudence may run in the blood of the French Canadians, just like those Cretans are lazy. But regardless of ethnic characteristics, I reflected on myself and, and how I have to fight my emotions and ground myself in the truth of Scripture, um, that is what the temperate and prudent man does, right? He weighs his decisions and his actions, not simply by what he feels and his emotional vibes, but by the unwavering truth of God's Word, a fixed destination, right? There is no way to be clear-minded and reasonable and thoughtful outside of knowing God's truth. Um, He is a hearer and a doer of God's Word. As for the other two words that we subsumed under self-control, respectable and hospitable, these things have to do not with inward self-control, but with outward recognizable self-control. A respectable man is recognized by others as being well-behaved, virtuous, right? A man who is not respectable is not merely annoying, Right? Who annoys us is often our problem, 
more than a problem with someone else. It is, but the man who is not respectable is someone who enjoys his sin and makes a show of it. Enjoys his sin and makes a show of it. Bruce Jenner is about the best example I can think of someone who is not respectable. Right? He flaunts his profligacy and promotes it. He's not respectable and not virtuous. And then there is the word for hospitable, which literally in the Greek means a lover of strangers. Um, do you find that you are only, think of this. This is what occurred to me as I was thinking through this. Do you find that you are only well-behaved or only respectable when you are among those you know? But when off with strangers, you are a different person entirely. More aggressive. You're more dismissive. You're more angry. You're more argumentative with people you don't know when there's not much at stake. Um, The hospitable man is virtuous in private, among friends, and also among strangers. He loves the stranger. He does not walk by the homeless man and inwardly castigate him for his laziness. But he shows him compassion, buys him a meal, speaks to him as if he's a, a human being. He represents Christ to those who know him and those who do not know him, right? He holds on to what God has given him, home, food, money, resources, very loosely, and is prone to give it, he's more prone to give it away than he is to store it up for the future. Oftentimes, there's great tension in our marriages because of hospitality. The husband may be more hospitable than the wife. Or the wife may be more hospitable than her husband, and they argue about using their home and using their time for others, and one of them ends up doing it begrudgingly, right? Uh, duty rather than joy. Um, the elder must be hospitable. The elder must pursue those things. The elder must, it must become a joy for the elder. Hospitality is not just a feminine domain. Right? Are you welcoming to others? Do you talk to your neighbors? Do you take time to interrupt your schedule if a stranger asks you that question? It's going to take time to explain. Um, all of this is part of hospitality. It's showing honor to others, whether that is by feeding them, whether it's by talking to them, whether it's serving them. And it takes a lot of self-control to be hospitable. It takes a lot of self-control. You must engage in conversation. For some of you, that is the worst thing you can imagine. You must provide what others need. And some of you are so clueless about what others need. You can only think about your own needs. right? And you must pay attention to their strange diets within reason. Um, you can't cause a weaker brother to stumble. You must give up your own time. Some of you won't give up time. Time is the thing that locks you in to your routine that does not incorporate other people. And I'm using the you just to make it strong, but all of these things are we. I'm including myself in this. Um, Sarah is much uh, more hospitable than I am, but much less generous than I am. 
So in the end, it sort of works itself out. So, um, but we've had to work on it. We've had to discuss it. We've had to fight about it. Now, we'll pick up from there next week, but let me conclude with this. The qualifications for, the, for church office are high for a reason. The work of the office is often very hard. It's often very time-consuming. It's often very thankless. Uh, those who work as office in the church must evidence that God has worked in them. That God has worked in them. Um, Doug Wilson says, given the nature of the church and the message we have been given, it is important for the leadership of the church to evidence in their lives the fact that the gospel works. The man who wrote this epistle knew that truth very well, right? By the power of God, he went from one being who, who made the church suffer to being one who would relieve the sufferings of the church. The gospel worked in the Apostle Paul. Um, Such is the transformation that all men must go through before they serve the living God in office um, in his church. I'm not sure how this fits in, but it's a good quote. Um, Spurgeon says, Brethren, I hope, however useful God may have made us in our several spheres, we do not convince ourselves to be too vastly important. For, indeed, we are no such thing. The rooster was of the opinion that the sun rose early every morning on purpose to hear him crow. But we know that the sun did nothing of the kind. The world does not revolve. The sun does not blaze. The moon does not wax and wane. The stars do not shine entirely for the especial benefit of, the, of any one brother here. However admirable he may be in his own place, neither does Christendom exist for the purpose of finding us pulpits, nor our own particular church, that it may furnish us with a congregation and an income. Nay, nor does even so much as one believer exist that he may lay himself out for our sole comfort and honor. We are too insignificant to be any of any great importance in God's vast universe. He can do either with us or without us. And our presence or absence will not disarrange his plans. That's true even if I was wearing a robe up here. These qualifications are serious matters, but when a man thinks himself a perfect match for these qualifications, he has become too serious about himself. And may God protect us from that kind of man. May God root it out of all of us, men. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would raise up in your church officers that fear you and love you, that pursue godliness because you are glorious and to be godly is to be like you. I pray that the aspirations that men have for office would be genuine and not faulty, not not born out of the wrong motives. And that through this, not just in our church, but the church around the world, there would be, be... strength, there would be courage, there would be purity, there would be leadership, there would be submission, there would be um, a revival. Father, we pray these things to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in his name, amen.